Praise the Lord. It's so good to come together. And uh, I don't know about you, this is the first time um, I've preached the book of Acts. And um, I was kind of uh, intimidated by the book for a number of years. And I've gone through this and I've really, really enjoyed uh, the book of Acts. It almost rereads much like the book of uh, Genesis. There's many firsts that happen to begin in there as you read it through Genesis. Genesis is the beginning, isn't it? And it speaks again of many firsts. There's many firsts that happen to be in here. You know, we have the first church. We have the first sermon. We have the first baptisms. And to what we've been looking at uh, last week and what we continue to look at this week is the first persecution. We realize that James and John came to the gate beautiful. And as they were coming in, they were met by a beggar who was lame from birth. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power, again, of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was given the ability to walk. You know, all the attention quickly shifted on uh, both um, uh, John and Peter. And Peter refocuses the attention on the one who truly healed this man, which happened to be, again, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he preaches the gospel. He preaches, again, Jesus Christ. And at the beginning of chapter number four, we're told a couple things, and that is that the religious leaders were absolutely frustrated that they were preaching Jesus Christ, not only who he died, but that he was resurrected from the dead. And they took them and they incarcerated them. And we also found out that 5,000 were added to the church. You know, and right here we have a number of firsts, as we said, again, as we uh, begin this book. And this is one of, one of Satan's way to try to stamp out the church. And this is high, um, uh, what would you say, high drama. And, and the reason why is, remember, there's no other churches. You know, if you stamp out the church again at Jerusalem, guess what? There's, there's, there's nobody else to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that the gospel has been disseminated. And this is really high drama. You know, at the same time, it's something that the apostles should have expected. It's something even in our own time that we should expect. And the reason why is because of the words of Jesus. In John chapter 15, he says this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. And here it is. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, listen what they'll do. They will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. You know, and here we have the words of Jesus coming to fruition. You know, and this passage of Scripture is not only important because we see that the words of Jesus Christ come to pass, but it also tells us, beyond a shadow of a doubt, as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we should expect. We shouldn't be surprised by this reaction that happens begin in the world, even though we want the best for people, that they might trust the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to realize that there is going to be an opposition. And last time we tried to emphasize that the more that you love Jesus, the more that you're overwhelmed with his glory, the more that, 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 that that's what we want to talk about. That's what, we, what comes out verbally from our lips. People's need to trust in this great Christ. But the more that we love Christ, the more that we verbalize that message, the more that we are going to find that the world that happens to be again around us, again, uh, hates that message. You know, and you can see it in our society that happens to be again all around us, politically speaking. You know, if you happen to be a believer in Lord Jesus, even though you have great policies that happen to be again right there, your opponent is going to pick up that you happen to be a believer. You know, and they'll, they'll call you obstinate. They will call you bigoted. They will call you every kind of, again, verb that they can think of to describe your, your Christianity. 
You know, you look at politically, again, the world that happens to be against us. You look at the en entertainment uh, industry, and I can't think, again, of one film in the last 10 years that Hollywood has put out that, that, that has somehow made Christianity seem noble, seem loving, seem respectful. You know, again, what, what's it shown as bigoted, unloving? You know, some, some old guy with a scrawny finger pointing at the judgment at, at everyone. And I, 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 don't, I don't know about you, I've never met a Christian like that. I've never met a born-again, a truly born-again Christian who, who acts like that. You know, I see them full of love. I see them full of compassion. But that's the world, right, right, right? This is Christianity. This is why you should stand against it. You know, and we see that. And even in the education uh, um, uh, sector, you know, if you try to be a professor that happens to be again at a university and you happen to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to have a hard time finding tenure. And why? Because they look at you as absolutely ignorant. You know, and it's incredible because some of the greatest scientists that have ever lived, in fact, the greatest scientists, plural, that have ever lived have been believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and, and here it's not just that people stand opposed, but there is a hatred that happens to be among those who happen to profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, and the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why do people stand opposed to us? And, and, and the answer is quite simple. It's the message. It is the Christ of the message that they stand opposed to. So what do we try to do? We try to, uh, to de-emphasize the message many times and make Christianity about something else. You know, and, and it's amazing to, to see there is even a political movement that happens to be again out there that's very conservative, but it basically replaces Christ. Yeah, 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 we believe in Christ, but here's our politics. Here's, here's, here's what we believe in. In fact, this past week, I've, I met two people who found out I was a Baptist preacher, and they came and they wanted to talk politics with me. And they had nothing to do with Jesus Christ. They had no love for Jesus Christ, but they wanted to applaud conservative Christianity. They wanted to applaud this conservative movement that happens to be, be right there. And here's the thing. If you make Christianity about anything else than Jesus Christ, people will applaud you. You know, some take some sort of social ill, and they'll make their church all about that. Yeah, 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 we believe in Jesus, Jesus, but let's, let's, let's try and get rid of this social ill. And let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the world that happens to be around us, if we do that, will applaud us as believers in Jesus Christ. That's not what they're opposed to. What they're opposed to is what we call the gospel. What they're opposed to is what I need in my life most of all, is a Savior, is a Lord, some, somebody who would come and take the punishment that I deserve that I might live eternally before him. You, you know, and what's amazing about all of this hatred is that what people need most in the world is they need a Savior. You know, if we look at everyone saying, oh, you've got to preach on all these social ills, you've got to preach about all these things going on. You know, and they never ask the simple question, why is there evil in the world? You know, why is there wars that happen to be in the world? Why is there poverty that happen to be in the world? Why is it that there are children being neglected by their children, uh, by their parents? And the answer always comes back to the human heart, doesn't it? It always comes back to sin. We can change external environments that happen to be again around us, but we can't change the human heart. There's only one who can change the human heart, and that happens to be our great God. And what the world needs most is Jesus Christ. And what the church needs most is to stay on, uh, 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 on course. 
They need to recognize the great commission that God has given us to make and mature disciples for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, I really want us to see and really want to prepare our hearts and really want us to, to, to recognize the glory. And, and, and I think a lot of times when we think about opposition, we think about persecution, we think many times there's no way that I'll be able to do what Peter does. There's no way that I'd be able to stand like Paul. There's no way that I can be a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just say this in a way that we're right. But I really want to want us to look at the power that happens to be behind that life. I want us to prepare to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and the first thing that I want us to realize, and we should realize this, if you love Christ, if you truly desire the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to face opposition. There, there's no ands, ifs, or buts it. You know, all who desire to love God, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, right? Not, not might be, but will be what? Begins with a P, if and no one knows. Persecuted, right? Right? There will be opposition. So if you verbalize the gospel, if you love Jesus Christ, if you want to live for him, let me tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, you will suffer persecution. You will suffer some sort of opposition to have us be in this world. You know, and we can see that in verses 5 to 7, because we'll look at this motley crew that happens to be gathered together. It says, on the next day... The rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? You know, and it's amazing to look at those who oppose us. You know, whether they happen to be, again, entertainers, whether they happen to be, again, family members, whether they happen to be, again, politicians... It's, it's, it's incredible because many times I think we look at them as absolute enemies, don't we? These, we're over here and they're over there, you know, and we'll keep our distance, but we want them to keep their distance. You know, and here's the amazing thing. When you look at Peter, Peter loves these gentlemen enough to, to come near, to, to, to actually risk, to actually proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder... If our, if, if our love for Christ, if our love for this great God has intersected so deeply, so wonderfully in our hearts that it's caused us to love those who would be naturally our enemies and not want anything to do, to be somehow a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, to somehow speak forth the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think of the people that happen to begin in your life that are outside of Jesus Christ, and it might even have caused harm in your life. You know, do you ever pray for them? Do you ever look for opportunities that you might be somehow a gospel witness in their life and even speak forth that wonderful message of Jesus Christ? Because this is what we see in, in uh, Peter. But verse number five starts, uh, starts this way. On the next day, otherwise they spent the night. And this would have been Peter. This would have been John. And this also would have been the man who was born lame but now healed. It says, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. And the rulers would be just, just basically be the chief priests. And as we looked at last week, this would have been made up of Sadducees. When it talks about the elders, the elders would have been the chief of the chief priests, right? They would have been, again, the, the, the big weeks that happened to begin over there. And, the, and when it describes the, the scribes, the scribes would have been just laymen who were um, experts in the law. And they would have been mainly Pharisees. And what you have here gathered together, what you have is what is known as Sanhedrin. 
And this is the religious and the ruling body of Judaism that are to gather together to examine them. And then we have some of the members that include it. It says, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who made up the high priestly family. Now, when you look at this lot, we've met some of these names before. And some of these names, again, we've saw over the Gospels, right? And we realize that this is the same motley crew that condemned the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and when you look at Annas at this time, Annas is no longer the high priest. But because he's an elder statesman that happens to be again right here, he's looked upon with respect, and he's given that title anyways. The one who happens to be high priest at this time happens to be Caiaphas, you know, his son-in-law. You know, and as far as the other two uh, gentlemen, John could be Jonathan, the son of uh, Caiaphas. We're really not sure about that. And Alexander, we know nothing about. But these first century writers would have known everything about them. And I want to impress upon you, these are the same men that beat, that plucked the beard of Jesus, that, that blindfolded Jesus, put a hood over him, smacked him in the face, spit upon him as absolutely worthless. This is the same motley crew that these disciples are before. And you can imagine the thoughts going through, through, through your mind. Because that's cross. And, and, and seeing Jesus on that cross would have been, again, so visible in their memories, in their thoughts. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And they would have been gathered together um, in the same hall that Jesus was examined. And there would have been uh, seats in a semicircle. And this is where the 70, again, would, would sit and then these three men will, would be standing in the midst of this semicircle. And they would be there to answer for the crimes. And remember what, what has happened, a miracle. You know, and there's an Old Testament uh, laws in how to deal with miracles. And it's basically this. Bring them before, examine a miracle to see if it really did take place. And then you examine the teaching or the theology behind the miracle. In other words, what are they saying? What are they teaching? Is this in line with the Old Testament? Because if it is in line with the Old Testament, then the miracle is to be seen as from God. If there happens to be, again, a theology that's different from the Old Testament that contradicts what they read in the Old Testament, then these men are to be taken out of the city of Jerusalem and stoned by the community again to death. You know, but the amazing thing right here is none of that process is followed. You know, they don't examine the miracle. They don't examine the teaching of these men. They just look at them as absolutely guilty. And you can see that in verse number 7, you know, because it says, And when they set them in their midst, they inquired. And you can almost imagine the arrogance of this question, because this is not a question trying to find out an answer. They know. You know, we're already told in verse number two that they were frustrated, that they were teaching Jesus as being risen from the grave, right? And so you can imagine the arrogance and the frustration, you know, uh, it, it's almost like a demand, by what power or by what name do you do this? You know, and this is the healing of this man and the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and you have to understand what they mean by power and name. You know, power is not, again, where did you get this power? Where did, where did this power to heal people coming from? That's not what they mean. What power means is authority. And what the name means is also authority. You know, by what rabbi, by what teaching, by what school of thought, by what sector of Judaism do you do this? And remember, if they say Jesus Christ, remember who Jesus is. You know, we're just a little over two months removed from Jesus being taken and executed, again, for high crimes against, against Rome. You know, Jesus, again, is a very dangerous name at this time. And what was a great crime? 
I mean, a, a lot of times I don't think we examine the text or we even think about that question. I mean, what did they do? And here's what they did. They helped this man who was lame from birth, and they gave him the ability to walk again. You know, that's, that's one of their great crimes. And then the, here's the second great crime. The second great crime is here a large gathering gathered before them, and they called the people back to God, that they would worship God, that the Israelites, you know, whom, whom all these religious leaders were to love, they called them back in repentance to the one true God. But the frustration that they have, and we'll look at this verse next time. It's really down in verse number 13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived, and this is the key right here, and perceived that they were uneducated and only what? Common men. In other words, common sinners. You know, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You know, by what authority? You have no right to teach the people. You know, you have no schooling. You have no education. You have no standing in the community of faith. By what authority do you do this? And here's the amazing thing about this, and you see this so often. You know, and, and it's basically this. They were astonished. Let me, let me tell you, a lot of times visitors will come in, and they'll sit, and here they have nothing to do with Christianity. They have the preconceived thoughts of Christianity as being narrow, stifling, unloving, and they'll sit in a congregation. They'll, they'll, they'll see the people of God mingling together. They'll see their love. They'll see their respectfulness. They'll see their joy that haven't begun in, in their hearts. And then they'll hear the preaching of God's word, and they'll see a relevance that they never knew again happen. And here's the re response. They're absolutely astonished by it. And isn't it amazing? This is the same re response that we have all the way through the Gospels, right? When Jesus is 12 years old, he makes his way to Jerusalem. And here's, here's all, of, this is a few decades before. And here's all these religious leaders that are gathered together. And he begins to ask them these in-depth questions of the Old Testament. And what were they? They were astonished. You know, where did this knowledge come from? And then, you know, as we go through the Gospels, Jesus is teaching, Jesus is teaching, Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And what do we read at the end? The people were just baffled. They were just astonished because here is one who is teaching like nobody else has taught in the Scriptures with such authority, with such passion, with such clarity. You know, and that's what we see here. And here's the question. How would they respond? And here's the amazing thing about a hard heart that chooses not to believe. They discard it. You know, if you're astonished by something and you start to see the relevance of it, and you start to see, and here's one other thing that I want to say just before I'm going to go on, but, but it's basically this. In that verse number 13, the way it ends, I love the way it ends, because it ends this way. They perceived that they had been with who? Jesus. And they mean it. They mean it not in a good light, but a negative light. But can you think of any higher... Con commendation of ours. Here we are, you know, we're joyous. Here we are loving. Here we are giving the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And someone perceives that person's been with Jesus. I don't think there's any higher commendation. And it's amazing to look at this because these men will not give any order. I mean, if I was astonished by all this, and, and think of it, the first thing that we would do is examine the miracle. 
And we've passed by, these are religious leaders, right? They live in the confines, in the area of Jerusalem. They would have passed by this beggar all the time. They would have recognized him. Here he stands whole. That happens to be again before us. How do we explain this? Here are these common fishermen. Here are these men with no education. And they're preaching a message with such boldness and clarity and such insight into the Old Testament scripture. Where did they get that? Where did they get that? You know, and we're told in verse number 8, and we'll look at that in a second, but it says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, that's where the wisdom came from. That's where the clarity came from. You know, and the answers are there for anyone who really wants them. And one of the things that you have to realize, because I think a lot of people outside of Christianity, and I think a lot of times we get stuck in this, a lot of people think the gospel is illogical. You know, we think many times that people can't comprehend the gospel. And let me tell you, the gospel is profound enough that the wisest sages will not plumb the depth of it, but it's simple enough that the, these little children that were gathered here this morning can understand the gospel, that Jesus died for me, I'm a sinner. You know, and it's amazing to look at that the gospel makes sense. It really does. You know, the gospel is not illogical. You know, we look at uh, truth and error. We look at, again, what is right and what is wrong, and it's built into the DNA. It's built into us because we are made in the image of God. So we could go to the deepest heart of some jungle, and we could meet a tribe that has been excluded from uh, society. And when you ask them about what's right and wrong, is it wrong to lie? Is it wrong to murder? Is it wrong to commit infidelity? The answer would be yes, yes, yes. Right? How come they have the same moral qualities and the same moral standards? There has to be a law keeper, right? And the law keeper's God. And it's not a far leap to all of a sudden look at our lives and recognize that we're guilty. Let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, it is absolutely historical verifiable. Otherwise, there's historical certainty, and it's not hard to prove, that there was a man who, who, who walked the streets again of Galilee, who walked the streets of Jerusalem, called Jesus. You know, it's historically verifiable and it's easy to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he died, that he died on a Roman cross. And it's historically and very easy to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that he rose from the grave. The message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely a logical and a historical message. But what do people do? Uh, you know, I believe in science. <laughs> What's that got to do with it? Right? Uh, I don't want to be bigoted. Well, what's that got to do with it? You, you know what we call these in argumentation? If you ever had a university course called logic, these are called red herrings. And you know what a red herring does? It doesn't deal with my sin. It doesn't deal with the issues at hand. It doesn't deal with who Jesus Christ is, but it goes over here. Let's talk about science. Let's talk about evolution. Let's talk about creation. Let's talk about, again, uh, how we treat one another and everything. No, 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 no. We're talking about your own personal sin before a holy God. And there was, there was a Christ who came. You know, but that's what people want to do. They want to deflect the argument away from their need, away from what we call the offense of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've done that all of your life. Maybe you've made one excuse after another excuse and now after another excuse, and you've never really dealt with your relation, with who you are before a holy God and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
you know, maybe you've made all excuses. And this is amazing. This is why I love going through the book of Acts. This is why I find it so fascinating. How can 12 common men, mostly fishermen, with no standing, with no status whatsoever, turn the whole world upside down, the whole Roman world upside down by the end of the first century, but in one generation? How, how could they do that? They're not the powers in Judaism. They're not the power that happened to begin in Rome. You know, and we see this God working through common men to bring the truth to light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a believer here this morning, and maybe the greatest fear that happened to begin in your life is opposition. And let me tell you, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, but let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what people need most, what the world needs most, what... What, what your neighbors need, what your extended family needers need most is Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen from the grave. And God has called each one of us into their lives, not only to live the gospel, but be verbally giving that gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us a command, again, to be uh, great commission Christians. So we see that, and it will bring opposition that happens to begin in, in our life. But the second thing that I want us to look at is the face of belief. Many times we look at the face of unbelief. I want us to see the face of belief. And you see that, and we're only going to get through um, uh, verse number 8 this morning, but I want us to just read this whole passage of Scripture because it's so germane as you follow through verse number 8. Verse number 8 explains what happens next. It says, Then Peter, and here it is, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, right? So we have the reason why Peter says this. He says, Rulers of the people and elders... If we are examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means that this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that, that, that was rejected by you. And who are you? The builders, which has become what? the cornerstone of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole foundation of salvation. And there is salvation, where? In no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I think this is such a high drama. It really is. You know, and as I look through church history, there's many points of high drama, because you're dealing again with light and darkness. You're dealing again with people who love Christ and people, again, who stand absolutely in hatred of Christ and opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite moments in church history happens to be in the life of Martin Luther. Martin Luther goes to what is called the Diet of Worms. And when they went to these places of debate, they would debate sometimes. You know, we would think, uh, oh, we're having a conference. It's going to be three or four days. It's a long conference. Let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, they would go weeks, sometimes even months, debating these issues. And so he goes to the Diet of Worms because he's bringing all of his religious writings. So there's a big stir that happened to happen to be. This is the beginning of what is known as Protestant Reformation. And he wants to explain all of his writings. He wants to explain them from the Word of God. You know, and here are the, uh, here are the Roman Catholic detractors, and they know how dangerous a man Martin Luther happens to be. So what they do when they finally arrive and all the seats and there's this high drama, they're just going to ask him two questions. One is they lay all of his books out and they say, are these your writings? And the answer, again, of Martin Luther is yes, they're my writings. 
And then the second question is on a yes or no question. And it's basically this. Will you recant of your writings? And Martin Luther tries to protest. He says, well, which parts do you want me to uh, recant of? You know, certainly there's some statements in there that you even agree with. Tell me, which parts do you want me to recant of? And they, and they won't go there. Martin, this is a yes or no question. Will you recant? And here's, here's the amazing thing. Martin Luther knows beyond a shadow of a doubt what they're trying to get him to do. Because if he says, I will not recant, he's taken out immediately and he's burned at the stake and his life is lost. You know, if he says, I do recant, that's the end of the Protestant Reformation before it really even takes off. I mean, this is high drama. And he can feel a fear overwhelm him. And he says this, give me the night and I'll answer in the morning. And so they give him the night and they come. Same two questions. These are your writings? Yes. Will you recant? And Martin Luther stands up in one of the greatest moments of church history. And he says, I cannot. I cannot go against, and listen to what he says, sound reason and the scripture. Here I stand and I can do no other. And the benefactor saves him. And he's brought out by applause. And a huge spark is lit all over Germany that we call a huge flame all over Germany and beyond, which we call the Protestant Reformation. And why do I tell that story? The reason why I tell that story is this moment that we have right here in Acts chapter 4 is, I think, even a greater climactic episode in the life of the church than what we saw in Martin Luther. Because when you, when you come, it's, it's, it's the same thing. By what authority, by what name do you do this? And they know what happened to Jesus. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt. They could still see the images of him hanging on the cross. They could still see his swollen face, his wounds and everything like that. They know all of this. And there's no waiting the night. There's no trying to warm up the crowd. There's no trying to find points of agreement that happened again right there. But there's a boldness in preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, this is really high drama. Because remember, this again is the first church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think a lot of times we get there, you know, whether it happens to be Martin Luther, whether it happens to be, again, Peter right here. And I think we put ourselves in the text and we wonder, what would I do? Would I stand? Would I preach Jesus Christ? Would I profess faith in him when it would cost me everything? You know, because that's what we read in verse number 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. You know, and what's emphasized here right at the beginning is that he's filled, he's enabled, he's controlled by the Spirit of God. And remember, Peter is not, not ignorant in the sense that he doesn't know the gospel. He's not ignorant, again, in, in not knowing what God truly wants him to do. It's the boldness to do what God wants him to do. And one of the things I love about this is Peter doesn't throw out curses at these individuals. He doesn't throw out names. You know, he, he doesn't say, you bunch of buffoons. How dare you put us on trial? But here, here's the thing. 
He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt. Think of it. This is theology in action, right? He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt God is sovereign. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has given this moment in time. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt God has put these rulers in place. And so he addresses them in that, in that way. You rulers, you authorities, you ones that happen to be in power. He recognizes their position to have in it. And the reason why I put, put that out is because of the way that we talk about authority figures many times, whether they happen to be political, whether they happen to be, again, people in our businesses, whether they happen to be our bosses or managers or whatever it happened to happen to be. So often we talk, to, talk about them in such... Uh, ignoble terms. You know, let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, they're made in the image of God. And their greatest need is not to do what you want them to do. Their greatest need is Jesus Christ. You know, and we need to show respect for them. You know, but what I love again about this is this is exactly what Jesus Christ said would take place. He said you take, here it is, here it is. You are going to come before these authorities to give an answer for the hope that happens to be in you. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, beginning of verse number 11, he says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, that's what's happening. Do not be anxious about what you should, uh, how you should defend yourself or what you should say. And then he says this, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And that's exactly what's happening in here. Peter and John are brought before the rulers and authorities. And the Holy Spirit gives them exactly what they need to say. And we look at the boldness and the bravery of Peter, and it's absolutely amazing. And as I said, I think a lot of times we wonder, you know, our society is becoming more anti-Christian. It's become more vocal as far as its opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and who knows? You know, maybe over the next two, three years, uh, it, it, it will become even harder to become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're questioned, when people ask us about our beliefs, what will he say? You know, there's laws that happen to begin on the land, whether it happens to be homosexuality and calling homosexuality or the whole LGBTQ Community, And let me just say some of the language we use as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ about these image bearers, that it's corrupt, right? We're corrupt. But let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, it is sinful. Let me say that again. It is absolutely sinful. Do they need to repent of that sin? And the answer is absolutely yes. Is it a sin before God? Here's the breaking of the law. Absolutely. You know, but we, we have to realize that. You know, and so there's laws that happen to begin in our books where I could, I could go to jail, you could go to jail for what I just said. And the question is, again, will we stay true to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And it's easy to say, well, I'm putting that moment, man, I'm, I've got the gumption to do it. You know, and I wonder, you know, if an extended family member asked you a question about Christianity and you had an opportunity to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you steer the conversation in another direction, realizing, oh, this could get awful. How about this? Somebody at work asks you a question again about church, asks you a question about your trust in Jesus Christ, and you realize, I'm going to have to work with this, this, this gentleman, this, this lady, for the next four, five, maybe ten years. You know, and you realize it could get awkward. They could respond in a hostile manner. They could call you a bigot. They could call, call, call you ignorant in every other 
name that happens to begin under, under the face of earth. It could even affect, again, whether you have a promotion. We preach Jesus Christ. How about to your neighbor? You know, I think this is one of our great fears. We many times look at these things, and this is the question we ask. Will I be able to be a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ? And let me just give a, a couple things, you know, as we consider that question. And one is, I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, we are worriers. Right? Isn't it true? Now, somebody's going to stick out their chest and say, I'm not a worrier. So let me just be honest. I worry about things. I really do. I'm anxious about things. You know, and I would be a fool to say that I never worry and I'm never um, controlled more by the fear of God or the fear of man rather than the fear of God. You know, that's a constant battle that happens to begin in my life. And I think it's a constant battle that happens to begin in most people's lives. Our brother Ken did a whole, I think it was 12 weeks on it. And it was absolutely amazing. And it's amazing. You teach that, but to apply it is a lot, lot, lot more difficult, isn't it? You know, and we realize that. And here's, a, and here's an amazing thing we have to realize about fear. And I think we all re- realize it. But I have to constantly preach this message to me. What is fear? What is it when I am overcome with anxiety? And it's basically this. We have to call it by what it is. And what it is is a lack of trust. It is unbelief in God. Isn't it? Is God sovereign? No one knows? Praise the Lord, he's sovereign. Does God love us with a perfect love, with a higher love than we could ever love anyone because we are found in Christ? And the answer is what? Yes. Well, in my anxiety, I either doubt God's sovereignty or I doubt his love. Isn't it true? You know, Jesus tries to give us some sort of assurance of that on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, he writes these words. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Well, what would I be anxious about in the first century? What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about the body, what you will put, be put on. They live day to day with these daily necessities that happen to the beginning of your life. And then he says this, is not life more than food? And the answer is yes. And the body more than clothing? And the answer is yes. And then he gives an object lesson. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value, more, of more value than they? And he answers, absolutely yes. And then he asks this question, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of your life? You know, I counted the birds. I was in the backyard the other day. I started counting the birds, and I gave up after 20 and I think, I think it was only a couple minutes, and they were just flying over, flying over, flying over. And every single bird, my God provides for their need. And think about it. If persecution comes, and I'm worried about it today, what am I changing? What am I changing? And the answer is what? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And here's the amazing thing. The reason why we struggle with what will be down the road is because we're not facing what's down the road. We're facing the anxieties that happen to be again here and here and now. When we do face those anxieties down the road, guess what? God will give us the grace that's necessary to go through anything that he's called us to go through. I can remember when I went to university. I hope, no, I got lots of time, good. Some of you go, oh, I heard that, I heard that. Um, when, when I went through university, the, the worst week I had at university, 
was my first week. You would think that was the most exciting week, but it, but it was the worst week of my life because I was all excited, man, I'm going to learn, I'm going to be educated and everything else like that. And every class I went, I got boom, boom, these books, boom, boom, boom. And I can remember walking, walking around the campus like this. I was in Greenville, South Carolina, and I had books that happened to be right here. I could actually balance them on my chin, and I'm walking around right there, and there's these assignments that are, that are given to me. And at the end of every class, this is what they said, you're going to have an exam. Right, and I looked at my big, thick history book. I looked at my other books that happened to be again this thick and this thick and this thick. And, and, and I thought to myself, there's no way I can do it. You know, and, and I started to get depressed. I started to get anxious. You know, how am I ever going to do it? And you know what? I was right. I was right beyond a shadow of a doubt. At that moment of time, there's no way that I could do that, that I could write those exams. But here it is, week after week after week, doing this assignment, reading this chapter, doing this test, and week after week after week after week. When I got over here, when I wrote my history of civ exam, I got an A. I'm not bragging about that, by the way. But, uh, yeah. But, uh, but anyways, why am I able to do it? Because here it is. I'm anxious over here because I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the ability. When I get over here, guess what? I have the ability. I worry about opposition, I worry about persecution. I look at Peter, I look at Martin Luther, I look at Paul and say, no, I can never do that. But if God puts me in that situation, he's gonna take me in my life and he's gonna give me the necessary grace to go through whatever he has called me to go through. If I choose not to glorify him, if I choose not to be his witness, it's my sin. It's not any fault that happens to be in his grace. Now, that's one thing. But the other thing, and I want you to think, here's Peter, right? Two months before, same temptation that happens to be right here that we find in Acts chapter 4. And what's the difference? How come he failed here? How come he can stand right here? And the text tells us. And here's what the text says. It says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Right? And what does fill mean? Right? It, it doesn't mean like this. It doesn't mean that. What it means is to be controlled. So if somebody's filled with alcohol, there's a certain way that they act. And we know that. If you've ever been around somebody, again, who's inebriated... They're not fun to be with. You know, you want to get out of there. Why? Because there's certain things that they say, there's certain things that they do, and you just don't want any part of that. And what are they? They're controlled by that alcohol. If you've ever been in the presence of somebody who's controlled by rage, you know what that's like, right? They're steamed, they can't be reasoned with, and you don't want to be in their presence. When somebody is controlled by lust, we realize they're thinking about something, they're pondering something, they want something, again, so bad, and it controls all of their life. So think of it. What does it mean to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God? And it means this, that I am controlled by him. I am, I'm, what does it mean to be filled with him? It means that I'm controlled by the Holy Spirit. You know, what's coming out of me are these God-honoring, these Christ-exalting responses. And you have that in Ephesians chapter 5, and verses 18 to 20. It says, and do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery. But what should we do but be filled with the Spirit? And I want us to listen to the outcome of being filled with the Spirit because this is Peter's outcome of being filled with the Spirit of God. I think a lot of times we think he's being zapped with supernatural knowledge, and he's not. 
You know, he knows the gospel. But he's filled. He's controlled. So what comes out of him is not the fear of man. What comes out of him is the fear, is the worship, is the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is what it says. Making melody to, uh, to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the midst of all these pressures, in the midst, again, of all these what-if questions, the reason why Peter preaches the gospel in such a clear way is because of what's controlling his life or who is controlling his life. Right? And all of us, according to Ephesians chapter 5, are to be filled with the Spirit of God. Now here's a question. How am I filled with the Spirit of God? How does the Spirit of God control my life? And the answer is actually given over in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 16. In Colossians, again, 3.16, don't, don't, don't read it. Don't, don't, don't read it. Look up here for a second. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 16, it start, starts off this way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? Ephesians 5.18, here it is. Be filled with the Spirit. They're the same command. And the reason why we know that it's the same command is because it's the same outcome in the, in the, uh, in the uh, next verses. So let me read it now. You can put it up. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And here's the outcome. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. So, so here it is. The Holy Spirit of God has inspired. He has breathed out the scriptures. So when we are controlled by the Spirit of God, we are, we are word-saturated individuals. We know the Word of God. We love the Word of God. We love the Christ that happens to be again of the Word of God. So much so that when the pressure is on in life, in whatever area of our life that there is pressure, what comes out of our life is honoring and glorifying to God. In fact, John MacArthur writes this in his commentary. He says, the principle is foundational to all the rest. Yieldness to this Holy Spirit is a key to successfully handling persecution. Because Peter was spirit-filled. Persecution merely drove him closer to the Lord. Lack of being filled with the Spirit is a reason the church today has difficulty Facing opposition. So think about it. If you had to say, what's the difference between Peter here and Peter here? What would you say? Hey, oh man, he's way above me. What's the difference? And the difference here, it is who is controlling your life. And I wonder if we realize that. We, you know, I think a lot of times we look at Peter, we look at... uh, who he is now, we look at um, Paul, we look at uh, Martin Luther, and we say, yeah, I am not a Peter, I am not a Paul, and I am not a Martin Luther. And yet when you look at these men, these were simple, common men. You know, the greatness of these men was not found in them, but found in another, found in our God found in him, you know, he dwelt in them so much so that what came out to them was honoring to the Spirit of God. And let me ask you, who's controlling your life? If you looked at the most influential person in your life, if you look at the most influential thing that happened to begin in your life, if you look at where you spend your time, your thoughts, you know, where is it? 
You know, because I, I think this passage is pertinent to parenting. It's pertinent to um, our marriages. You know, what is controlling my life? What is, who is controlling my life? You know, it's, it's in our work life. It's whatever troubles that, that we have. You know, what are we filled with? If you're filled with the whole idea that I want to be rich, you know, this whole idea of materialism, that is the thing that you're going to talk about. That's the thing that's going to overwhelm your heart. If you're thinking about being popular or having a certain boyfriend or girlfriend, you're going to talk about, again, those things. You know, if your whole goal, again, is to see your team win the Stanley Cup or win the Grey Cup or whatever it happens to be, you're going to be talking about them. Whatever feels. And think of all the time that we spend on news, on entertainment, on sports, and we watch this and watch this and watch this, read about this, read about this, read about it, and we wonder... Why doesn't the Spirit of God control my life and my marriage in the opposition that I face in my family? Why doesn't he? Well, what are we saturating our souls with? Is it the Word of God? Is it God's precious, God-breathed Spirit Word? You see, if you want to be Christ-honoring life, we have to be controlled by another. And that's the Spirit. And a tool that the Spirit has chosen to use to really indwell and control us is the Word of God. Let us seek in all of life. Opposition's coming. In fact, let me just say this. It's already here. Who's going to control our life? Who has a greater fear? God, our man. Be filled with the Spirit. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, as we look at this text, it's just amazing. God, it really is. Lord, we realize there's so many pressures that happen to begin in our life. There's so many things that vie for attention, both in the church and outside of the church. Lord, there's trials. There's temptations to make the church about something that it was never intended to be. And we realize, Lord, that many of those things are good things. We want to see people that are hurting in our community physically, Lord, somehow be helped up. Lord, we want to see a conservative movement even in our government. Lord, we want to see, again, unwed mothers, again, being helped out. Lord, when we look at all of these things, so often these things trump that which is of first importance, which happens to be the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we realize in all of these pressures and all of these trials, whether it happens to be, again, at home, whether it happens to be at work, whether it happens to be in the church, Lord, the call, Lord, the power that's needed Lord, is that we need to be controlled by another. I just pray, Lord, as we study your word, that we would let it, Lord, deep um, in the recesses of our hearts, so much so that responses that come out of us are Christ-glorifying. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have ordained these things. We thank you that you're the great lover of our soul. Just be with us now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.